Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It begins in your church Bibles on page 872 and is printed in your bulletin. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Please be seated. Let's uh, turn to the Lord in prayer as we come to the sermon. Grant, O Lord, that through our worship this day we may be awakened to the wonder of your love for us, that familiar words may shine with new meaning, and that the habit of worship may be cleansed of all stale formality and mere ceremonial observance. Open our eyes to see your loveliness and make our hearts to burn within us as you speak your word to us so that in wondering awe we may know ourselves forgiven, energized with new life, and throbbing with new power through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, someone said to me a little time ago, whatever happened to those movie clips you used to do before sermons? Well, here's a movie clip. <laughs> Yesterday, I received a letter that referred to an event that took place Almost a year ago now, December the 4th, 1951. My correspondent hadn't forgotten. I doubt if any of us have. That was the night 
A number one bus drove into a column of young Royal Marine cadets in Chatham and killed 24 of them. You remember? Now the letter asks some simple but fundamental questions. Where was God on that December night? Why didn't he stop? Isn't God supposed to be good? Isn't he supposed to love us? And does God want us to suffer? What if the answer to that question is yes? So I'm not sure that God particularly wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to be able to love and be loved. He wants us to grow up. I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he makes us the gift of suffering. To put it another way, pain is God's megaphone rouse a death world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men, the blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. Thank you so much. That's uh, Anthony Hopkins, as you might recognize him, reprising the role of C.S. Lewis in the 1993 Savoy Pictures movie, Shadowlands. And it's a picture, too, of Jack Lewis doing what Jack Lewis used to do in the 1950s, going around to explaining to church groups and others what God was doing with the problem of evil and specifically suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And to give it its due, that movie does a tremendous job of showing how Lewis came out from behind the theory to experience of deep suffering himself and to discover that what the Bible taught is true. And as we come to this episode in Luke 13 this morning, I think this is one of the things that's so striking about this episode in Luke's Gospel. As Luke records Jesus' words to the crowd... Jesus picks up, you'll notice here, the question about the problem of pain, and he never answers it. He never once explains why God permits suffering, or what purposes even evil might play in God's sovereign purposes. But what Jesus does explain in accounts like this one, as you can see, he does explain because it's much more important and more relevant to you. So in this massively important passage, I want to deal with three things uh, that we typically misunderstand. The three things that Jesus addresses here. If you will look at this chapter, a wrong picture of life, a wrong picture of life's purpose, and a wrong picture of God's love. So to dive in, uh, first of all, a wrong picture of life. The freight of these first five verses. As uh, we come to these questions, let's let Luke uh, set the scene again, as Renee has read it for us in Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. If you remember the way that Alan steered us uh, very well, I thought, through Luke 12 last week, you will recall that Jesus was speaking about 
this issue, the issue of what would happen at the end of the world and how people should repair for it. And you remember Jesus said to them, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, so why do you not know how to interpret the present time? I'm not sure, but I can imagine that people who were listening to Jesus there in the crowd speak about the signs of the times were telling Jesus, perhaps these people who came up to him, yes, we are seeing those signs, Jesus. Have you heard, Jesus, about Pilate, about the Roman governor, how he has spilled the blood of these Jews, these men from Galilee, perhaps rebels, perhaps homegrown terrorists of one kind or another, as they were bringing their sacrifices to the priests, and that presumably was in Jerusalem at the temple where blood sacrifices would have been made. We are reading the signs, Jesus. We are telling the times, these terrible times. And Jesus' response, you'll notice, is curious. If you and I had been there and heard about the violence of an act like that one, my guess is we would have been appalled by it. Of course we would have wanted Jesus to know about it. And I imagine they heard that news or maybe even witnessed it themselves with this kind of nauseated shock that we heard and experienced when we heard of how the 9-11 terrorists treated the pilots on those hijacked planes. Do you remember? Pathological, inhuman, given over entirely to evil. But while that piece of news would and did fill our news cycle, Jesus here barely focuses upon it. And it really raises this question, doesn't it, in terms of the way that we live our lives and what we consider to be most important. What could be more important than such an atrocity? Doesn't Jesus care about that? Well, it is, I think, a question of degree. Take a look at verse 2. Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans, these men who were murdered, were worse sinners than all the other Gentiles, sorry, the other Galileans, because they suffered in this way? And Luke says Jesus answered them, but it wasn't so much of an answer, and to be fair, there wasn't much of a question either, because Jesus has already sussed out what their assumption is behind what they've said. This is their worldview that he's exposing It's the way they think about why people have died in this awful, unexpected way. This is precisely what they were thinking. There is a God in heaven. He is absolutely in charge. And if in his city, this city, something awful like that could happen to these people by the hands of a Gentile monster like Pilate, it must be because they had it coming. It must be because they deserve this. This was their karma. These were their just desserts. And it's a fascinating way of thinking because really in two millennia it hasn't changed. Time and technology may change, but your basic human being and the way he or she thinks does not. I think this way, don't you? When some bad news arrives... Bad news to you, something bad in your experience. What are the first words that more likely or not will come out of your mouth, or maybe may not come out of your mouth, but certainly enter your mind? What have I done to deserve this? It's funny, you know, you can have all the theological training in the world, and then something happens to you, and the first thought that comes to the mind of the minister is this dark fear, God must be paying me back for that thing I did which he didn't like last week. 
the divine taskmaster teaching the lesson. And hidden, I think, behind that kind of thinking is a familiar defense mechanism. God could allow, we think, that bad thing to happen to them, well, because they were the kind of people who deserved such an awful thing to happen, because they were bad people, because they weren't really Jews, because for some unknown reason they had it coming. But if I've been good and God knows I've been trying, well, nothing bad then will happen to me. Except, of course, in a broken world, bad things do happen, even to the best of people, as well as the worst. In fact, from one point of view, you'll notice Jesus' response is desperately disappointing. It's even alarming. Because if you think about it, if you've had that worldview, this comes as a total shock. It means there's no predictability, there's no control, there's no safety. I can't stop doing whatever he wants to do. Whatever God wants to do, he might do. We can't inoculate ourselves against a world of suffering. So Jesus, first of all, nails this. He says emphatically that way of thinking, which is so common, is a wrong picture of life. He continues, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worst offenders? Worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. This isn't a question you'll notice that they raised, but Jesus adds to it. This wasn't a uh, topic, after all, that he hadn't thought about or didn't know about. And so he gives it now its familiar double nature, right? The first has been evidently a man-made cause of evil, and the second is natural, a building site accident. A building has collapsed, A wildfire has devoured an entire community in California. Did these people have it coming? You know, given opportunity, of course, people will tend to say the most ignorant things, including the most ignorant theological things, especially if they're on national television. So there was the congressman last week who reportedly saw the fires in California and declared them, quote, God's punishment to liberal California forgetting perhaps that fires happen in places other than California and liberals and conservatives tend to die in equal numbers in all of them. And they happened, of course, in a place called paradise. Were the fires punishment on liberal offenders, Lord? Jesus said, no, I tell you, unless you all repent. So I think we have to let this sink in. This is a wrong picture of life, and yet still a very common one in the way that we all tend to think. And if you look a bit closer, you'll find here also a wrong picture of life's purposes in verses 6 through 9. We've had an infestation of ants until quite recently in the Constable household. And uh, while they were with us, I was studying them, because once you've got them, you can't really get rid of them. Um, as one does. They're marvelous creatures, really kind of organic machines that God has created. But this is one of the things I discovered. You know when ants die, and I was watching them, the other ants don't... (laughs) No, really, this is very serious. They don't don't take any notice at first. They kind of go about their merry ant business. And then after a day or two, something changes, and they carry the little ant body in a procession out of wherever it is, in funeral procession. They put it in ant cemetery just outside the ant colony. That's the way it looks. 
Now, the question is, why do they do that? Well, it turns out it's not compassion or morality, it's chemistry. After a couple of days, the dead ant starts emitting oleic acid, and the other ants smell it and automatically respond to it as a dead thing that belongs on the garbage pile. It's rather sad. Now, one of the things that's significant about you is you are not an ant. When you've seen pictures on the news of the horrors of the fires in California or heard the agonies of parents in Nigeria who have lost their daughters or of children starving in refugee camps or of those who have been killed in some earthquake or volcanic explosion in South or Central America, you have more than chemical interactions that evince compassion in you, right? Remember your Hamlet? What a piece of work is man, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And so these people come to Jesus with this, and they're not just ants. They can't ignore what's happened to these other people. And again, if we're human beings, we are human beings not simply conditioned by our environment, but by the compassion that God has given us in his image. There's outrage, of course there is. These people catch the echo that there must be more to the story of humanity than meaningless, disconnected lives strung together by commerce and self-interest and Walmart. And because they're right, you'll notice Jesus pushes them further. Notice what we skipped over here in verses 3 and 5. Jesus' repeated answer, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will, all of you, like the people that you've come to talk to me about, all of you perish. So to recap, A, some people have come to Jesus to tell him about an atrocity. B, Jesus reveals their own working assumption that bad things happen to bad people. C, Jesus tells them that they are mistaken, that there are no favorites with God. There is no divine shield for nice people against calamity. There are no superpowers for believers. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card for some the rain it falls on the just and unjust fella, but mainly on the just because the unjust has stolen the just's umbrella. So where does that leave us? Well, this is what Jesus presses home. He's telling them, listen, it's actually far worse than you imagine. Unless you repent, which simply means turn from your own independence and your rebellion back towards God, you will all, all of you, religious or irreligious, all of you, likewise perish. So Mark, two things. You will perish. A thought experiment. Jesus is saying, think of the people at the top of your moral goodness list. Who would you put there? Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Mr. Rogers. We'll give you a billion slots so you can include yourself somewhere on the list, not too high. If that person dies, be they morally good, bad, or indifferent, Without responding to Jesus, the real nature of things beyond death means something worse than death awaits them. Hamlet, the dread of something after death, right? Except that this is real. So what's the purpose of life? It's to heed the warning of Jesus about this death beyond death. The real death, not the expiration of the body, but whatever it is that awaits the spirit that doesn't know God. Because straight up, Point two, unless you repent, Jesus says, unless you deal with me and take my rescue, you will all of you perish. Not a popular idea today. 
And you can see Jesus is saying to them, now do you see why I had to come? So there are two kinds of people. In the first column are those who think they've won their way through that obstacle, even if it's only wishful thinking. And in the second column are those who think they've already lost it, so Jesus is their only chance. This is one of the reasons there are so many conversions in prison. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But here's the shock. Jesus says to decent human beings and to morally upright religious people, there is no rescue for people in column A. All of you nice, good people who don't see your need, don't smell the oleic acid of your own sins, right now you are making your way like so many ants towards the garbage pile of eternity. Rescue is solely in column B which is why many of us who've grown up in church or in religious homes or with a core conviction of our own rightness or justice or the complacency that can come from it need to hear the gospel with the ears of a desperate man or a desperate woman. And to underline that image in verse 1, people who had every right, more right than we do, to feel they were entitled to salvation... Jesus then adds this quick encapsulated parable of the fig tree in the vineyard. Very quickly, what does this parable tell us? Well, it's a conversation between two people, a man who owns a vineyard, who has come to inspect the ripening grapes of his many vines, and the person who is employed to look after the vineyard. I was watching a very highbrow uh, documentary on iTunes this week about the vineyards of Burgundy. And at one point, they have this guy speaking as only the French can of how he plays music to the barrels of maturing wine in his cellar because he knows it does them good. Wine is alive, he says, from the moment you pick the grapes to the moment you drink it, it's alive. And that, I think, is part of the point of the parable. The big burgundy wine hole cellar turns up admiring the vines of Volnay or Bousseron, And he comes to his prize vineyard and he sees this ugly-looking fig tree taking up valuable soil and growing space among his precious vines. What's this doing here, he asks the vine dresser. I don't know, the guy says. Want me to get rid of it? No, says the big guy. Give it another year. Jesus is saying, fellas, you've had the wrong picture of life, but there's still time to turn around. And finally, a wrong picture of God's love, verses 10 through 17. Bear in mind as we close that these last seven verses in Luke's mind illustrate what Jesus has just said. This is one of the difficulties with modern translations of the Bible. You have all of these editorial notes and unhelpful headings right in the middle of something that was really constructed so that you should read it together. So, very common in the structure of the Gospels. First, the teaching by Jesus that Luke records, and then illustration of that truth in a real-world setting. So here's this account of Jesus now, that teaching having been done, teaching in a synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath. Again, nothing extraordinary there. And Luke says there was this woman there, perhaps a young woman who for all of her life had been bent over, Luke says, and could not, verse 11, could not fully straighten herself up. And Jesus sees her and bringing her to him without asking her or getting her to do anything, he tells her that she's going to be freed from her disability and he lays his hands on her and immediately she straightens up for the first time. But this is the interesting thing. 
How does the straightening show itself in Luke's account? Well, it shows itself, he says, by her immediately glorifying God. In other words, it wasn't simply physical. Something internal has happened. Something broken and crooked had been made straight and whole and realigned and right with God again. And predictably, the ruler of the synagogue gets upset with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, and that was pretty standard. But the important bit has just happened. So hold that thought. You know, uh, last weekend, uh, some of us went up, uh, as a number of us have, to hear a man called Bill Clark at a lay counseling uh, training in Northern Virginia. And I was reading this passage. Fireworks went off in my head, thinking about what Bill had said. He was explaining that human beings tend to come in two varieties, like pencils, whole and broken. Right, so here, I have a little object lesson for you here. God is the only person who can do this, and God is the only one who wants to do this. He says, I can do more with a broken pencil than I can with an unbroken one. Everyone else throws out the broken, right, and keeps the whole. But God says, I can do more with a broken pencil than I can with an unbroken one. What does that mean? Well, it means that fundamentally, we most of us have an entirely wrong picture of God's love. We try with all our religiousness or human decency or moral uprightness, don't we, ever since we were small, to stretch ourselves up as straight as we can in our independence and our self-justified religious pride or, or decent human beingness before God and other people to be the straightest pencil we can and say, look at me, God, see how well I can write. And God says, that's crooked. That pride is crooked. But Jesus takes broken, sin-confessing people who have known perhaps disaster of their own making, who've seen or been shown the sins of their own lives, who have another hope except in him, and God says, because of what my son has done for you, that's straight. That's whole. Who did Jesus say these broken pencils are? Everyone who belongs to him. You know, in our shame, we wear our masks with each other and we keep our distance from God. We condemn ourselves. We curse ourselves constantly for being what we're not. We build our own pulpits. We bury ourselves in our own prisons. We give up on Christ. Even as Christians, I'm useless, washed up, done for, too far gone, unworthy for you, God. But God says to you in this book, you didn't get that from me. I can do more with a broken pencil than with an unbroken one. So that is God's love. That is his purpose. That is his life, which still awaits you. And I want to say to you, if these are new words for you and you've never reckoned with the broken pencil of your life and asked Christ to be your healing, I have here a little booklet I'd love to give you. It's called Two Ways to Live. Or perhaps you have a friend you'd like to give it to. But this is the stuff of eternity, and it's the purpose of Jesus. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be straightened out. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know how many years I've become a 
been a Christian and yet still there's this voice that tries to persuade me, be your best, do your best, wear your mask. And it's all of it rubbish. What you accept, what you receive, is the worship of a broken spirit, an honest spirit, a humble spirit, someone who admits to who they are and receives your whole love for that brokenness paid at the cross. Lord, may we, all of us, religious or irreligious, come to know you and thus come to know ourselves in Christ. Amen.